In the last presidential election, 2016, it was calculated that there were 232 million Americans who qualified to vote. 232 million. Do you know how many votes were cast? 132 million. There are 100 million Americans who legally could vote that did not vote in that election. At the same time, there were 200 million registered voters. Of the 232 million, 200 million registered to vote. And when registering to vote, normally registered for a party, registered Democrat or Republican or Independent or other parties. And by that indicated that they belonged to some degree to that party or to that ideology. And those parties probably expected, you're going to vote for our candidates. But there were about 70 million registered voters who chose not to vote in that last election. Out of all the things that might have made people think, and many people spent a lot of time thinking about that, um, one of the questions had to be, who are these people who are not voting? Do they really follow the candidates? Are they, do they really belong to the party? Are they real followers? In a very different aspect of our culture, the word follower is used uh, most commonly right now in terms of Instagram. If you Google followers, you'll get results only for Instagram. How to increase the amount of followers you have. Uh, how to sign up for ways to get more followers for free. Or you can pay to get more people to follow you on Instagram and increase your platform and increase your revenue. And they will create fake accounts that will follow your account so you have more followers. Are those real followers? No. And that's a question that has been asked all over our society, in our churches. Seeker-sensitive churches are trying to see how can they get followers? How can they find those people who are seeking God, and how can we make sure that we're giving them what they want so they're coming here? How do you find real, genuine followers? We're gonna look this morning at something that Jesus does, John chapter 4, a time where he is seeking out a genuine follower. As we're following the, this train of Jesus' life in our series, we're going to look at this specific instance where he's calling out people who will follow him. We're talking about following Jesus. How does God go about getting people to follow him? It is uh, centered around this one verse in this text, John chapter 4, Verse 23, I think this whole passage centers around this verse, verse 23. Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, true followers, will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is seeking people to worship him. Seeker-sensitive churches are looking for people that are following after God, but that's not how it works. People aren't seeking after God. God is seeking after people. So this, this text is about, this is what this sermon is about, is true worshipers. It's about worship. Now you might know this, this text, this interaction with the Samaritan woman. Uh, you might think of it in terms of evangelism because Jesus is reaching out to this woman. Uh, you might identify with the woman, the, the, the person that Jesus is calling out to. Or maybe you see it more from Jesus' side of things, not that you're calling yourself Jesus, but 
you might see parallels of when you've tried to interact with someone and, and speak through them and offer them hope and the way that they've responded similar to this woman. And, and there's some truth there. There's some things that we see in Jesus as he reaches out to this woman, uh, things that we should model. Maybe you think of this, this is about worship. Maybe you think of worship in terms of music. Jesus is talking about worshiping in spirit and truth. Doesn't have any something to do with music? Well, yes, although normally when we talk about worship in God's word, it's not exclusively about music. We, we just gathered here, we just sang, we call that our corporate worship, and it is, but that's only one part of what God is talking about when he talks about worship. Uh, so maybe you are going to hear this, we're talking about worship, God's seeking true worshipers. Maybe you're going to hear this as someone who, who is a true worshiper, but maybe you're going to see, hear this as someone who Jesus is inviting to be a true worshiper like he is to this woman at the well. I read that one verse, the key verse, I think, in verse 23, but let's look at the beginning of the text and, and get, into, uh, get into the scenario here, back in verse one. Now, when Jesus learned that the, the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Let's pray about what we're reading, what we're going to get into this morning. God, we, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you are seeking us. You have sought us out to be true followers, to be true worshipers. And we pray that we would heed your word this morning, what it says about doing just that. Praise in Jesus' name, amen. As we go through this text, I want to ask four questions with you. Uh, first one here, what does worship have to do with Jesus? Sorry, the big idea there. God, God is seeking true worshipers. Talking about worship, what does that have to do with Jesus? We kind of already answered that. Jesus is the one seeking true worshipers. Uh, another answer to that question is the fact that Jesus deserves to be worshipped. That's probably the first answer to the question. Jesus deserves to be worshipped. And therefore, he's seeking true worshipers. And there's a lot more that could be said about those points. But we're going to get into this where we see him seeking out worshipers. He was making more disciples, verse 1. We read about that. Next week, we're going to talk about how he's calling his disciples, the ones that we normally talk about as disciples. But we see him here not just seeking people in general, not just seeking the disciples that were going to, to be the disciples, but we see, see him seeking out Samaritans. Uh, and this is not a, an accident, this is not a chance meeting where we find Jesus at the well with Samaritan. It says that Jesus had to leave Galilee, Galilee down there, or sorry, he had to leave Judea down in the south, and had to go up to Galilee all the way in the north. And if you can see on the map Judea in the south, Galilee in the north, the straightest line goes right through Samaria. Of course, that's obvious to us. Uh, many of you know, though, that was not the normal practice for, for the Judeans, for the Jews. 
because they disliked the Samaritans so much that they had to go from Judah in the south, Judea in the south, to Galilee in the north, they would go around Samaria. They would go across the Jordan River all the way up on this other side and avoid the Samaritans altogether. They did not like these people. That's why it says in verse 9, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And that's why this woman was very astonished that Jesus was even talking to her. But Jesus did not take this route. He went straight through Samaritan, Samaria, and it said Jesus had to. He had a plan. He had a meeting with this woman at the well. And we find him right there in the middle at this town called Sychar. This was not an accident. Uh, Samaritans were viewed as bad. Jesus was accused as, of being a Samaritan once. That was an insult to him. But he loves people. He loves the Samaritans even. And that's why he is there seeking out worshipers among the Samaritans. And not just the Samaritans in general, but I think Jesus is seeking out this woman specifically. He comes to this well. The well was a meeting place, so he, he, he loves people. He's going to go meet people. Where is he going to go? He's going to go where people are, the well. Uh, we see in the Old Testament a couple times where people are, meet at the well. Uh, Isaac, his wife, was found at the well. Jacob found his wife at the well. So Jesus meets this woman. Maybe she thought he was trying to pick her up. I don't know. Um, but he goes to where people are. They gather at the wells. But this isn't a well where there are a lot of people. There's just this one woman. It says she came alone. She came at midday. It says this was the sixth hour. It's the sixth hour since sunrise, so it's noon. Jesus is hungry. His, people, his disciples went to buy food. Most women went to gather water from the well. They went together social outing, like girls going to the bathroom together. Uh, they went in the beginning of the day or the end of the day, not in the heat of the day. So Jesus ends up at this well in the heat of the day. It's also a well that's outside the city. There was a well inside the city where all the other women went to, but not this woman. She was alone. She was at the wrong place at the wrong time. She was basically there because she was an outcast. Well, we read later She's a very immoral woman. Uh, and even though the Jews hated the Samaritans for their reasons, the Samaritans hated this woman. She was an outcast. She had the, the scarlet letter, A, like Hester Prynne did. She was an adulterer. And, and she was maligned because of that. And that's why she's here alone. And that's why Jesus is here, to meet her specifically. I want you to compare. Jesus is seeking this woman out. In the last chapter, chapter three, who is Jesus seeking out? He's seeking out Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a man who's an upright, moral person and a Jew. This chapter, Jesus is seeking out a woman who is immoral and a Samaritan. Jesus seeks out people because he loves people and he loves all kinds of people. And he talks to Nicodemus and he talks to this woman just the same. Many of us have a hard time talking to different people the same way. Many of us probably can't have the same kind of conversation we could have with a Republican as with a Democrat. Many of us probably couldn't have the same type of conversation with your neighbor down the road as with a foreigner who doesn't speak our language very well. Many of us probably can't have the same type of conversation with someone of our own generation as with someone several generations removed. Jesus talks to all kinds of people. 
He's not seeking someone who can bring him influence. He's seeking out all kinds of worshipers. In our social media age, we talked about Instagram, it's common for Instagram people to follow influential people in the hope that they will get influential people to follow them. If you gain enough attention over in someone else's world, maybe you'll get enough followers to come with you. Similar YouTube, YouTube, collab- YouTube creators, they often collaborate with other YouTube creators. They try to cross-pollinate their audiences. So that person has a lot of followers, I'll do something with them and then I'll gain some of their followers. Jesus isn't doing that. He's not going to someone who can bring him influence. He's going to someone who is hated by the people that were hated by the Jews. He's going to maybe the lowest of the low here. He's seeking out worshipers from the variety of people. He's seeking out people who need him. He's seeking out people who should be seeking him, but they aren't. So let's look at this. How does he seek out this woman? We kind of are, are into the fact that he's seeking her out, but what does he do when he gets there? She gives him an initial pushback. She says, you shouldn't be talking to me. So what does Jesus do with that? Let's keep reading on in verse 10 here. Jesus says back to her, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you give a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Very quickly in this conversation, Jesus is already beginning to offer the gospel to this woman. He's talking to her, he's talking about whatever they talk about at a well. They're talking about water, but he very quickly makes that into a gospel conversation. He knows that's where he's going with it, even if she doesn't, and she doesn't. She doesn't get that right away. She's thinking purely in physical terms. We see that. She responds to him in verse 11 and 12. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So Jesus repeats the offer again. He said to her, verse 13, 14, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this time the woman responds, not with doubt, but with some genuine interest. She says, verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Sign me up for that. Eternally thirst-quenching water? Yeah, I want that. But she's still missing Jesus' point. She, she responds with interest, but it's only the surface level. You're gonna give me water so I'm never thirsty again? Okay, I'm gonna sign up for that. She, she sees Jesus here as someone who can help her, who can meet one of her, her needs. And that's often how people see Jesus. Jesus can give me something that I want. Jesus can give me something that I feel that I need. Lord willing, as we continue on in this this series, we're gonna see when Jesus teaches the parable of the soils. And the soils, there are four different hearts that respond to God's word in different ways. And three of them respond to God's word. Yes, we like that. But there's no root. It doesn't go down to the heart and it produces no fruit, and soon it is gone. Surface level responses. Jesus can give me water, I want Jesus. Jesus can give me this, I want Jesus. But it doesn't go down to the heart. And Jesus isn't interested in those types of followers. He loves them, 
but he's not content to leave them there. And so he sees with this woman, that's her response, and so he wants to take her deeper. He's offering her living water. He's not offering her something that can just satisfy her felt needs or her, her earthly problems. He's offering her salvation, eternal life. Now, when he says this, he doesn't unpack everything that he means by saying living water. He doesn't unpack the fact that he's offering a relationship with God. He doesn't unpack the, the fact that he's offering forgiveness for sins. He doesn't unpack what heaven means and justification and all of this. So what was the woman supposed to understand when he says, you can have living water? What was he putting in front of her? At the very basic level, he's saying, you can have something. I can give you something that will satisfy your soul. Talking about satisfaction. So let's ask this question, second question. What does worship have to do with satisfaction? He's telling this woman, I can give you something that quenches your thirst. You notice he started off the conversation by asking for a drink. He was saying, I'm thirsty. But he very quickly jumps to the position where he assumes that she's thirsty. And she is, and she knows it. He knows that he has something that meets her need and it's deeper than she even realizes it. Now, at the same time that she is saying, I want that, but it's only surface level, she's only engaging with him on the surface level, at the same time, she's revealing her heart. When she says, give me this water so that I do not have to come here to draw water, she's identifying there's something that is really painful in her life that she wants to avoid. She doesn't want to have to keep coming back to this well, alone, isolated from her society. She doesn't want to have to keep coming here to draw water. She's revealing this shame in her life, pain from a place where she has sought satisfaction. She has sought something to satisfy her soul, and it has returned empty to her. And she does not want that. Jesus understands that. He sees what that reveals about her heart, the the false worship she has been pursuing. And so he's going to go deeper with that. And he does it, we can see here in verse 16, 17, he does it by exposing her sin even more, bringing out her sin and calling her essentially to repentance. Jesus said in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. Before she gets too far down this living water, he says, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. How do you read that? Do you read that as as Jesus being a fire and brimstone preacher? Woman, you're a sinner! Or do you read it, mate? Like I did, I was interpreting there as I was reading. I think this is God being compassionate. At the same time he is calling her out, I think this is God being gentle. Her sin, normally we think of 
calling out someone's sin or saying this is right or this is wrong is portrayed as that's just gonna put walls between people. But what put the wall between this woman and Jesus? It was her sin. That's what kept her from her savior, kept her from being a true worshiper, and Jesus is the one who's going to come and try to break down that wall for her. This is Jesus being compassionate and good to her. This is Jesus being strong and kind that we just sang about. And I think we see that she keeps talking to him. She doesn't clam up. She doesn't blow up. She doesn't walk away. She keeps talking to him because Jesus is engaging her in a way that she can, she can relate to. She can understand. And why does Jesus do this? Why does he call out her sin? He understands that the pain she feels that she wants to avoid comes from her sin. It's a natural byproduct of her sin. She has been seeking satisfaction in many things. A string of failed sexual relationships and she is feeling broken and shameful from that. And so he's connecting this idea of living water to the fact that she has been a, had a lifestyle of unliving water. Her sin of finding satisfaction in everything else and leaving her empty is the perfect setting in which he can say there is living water. He knows she wasn't created for this. She wasn't created to be dry and empty. He knows her thirst is not really physical. It's not even social that she wants people to respect her and accept her. He knows her thirst is really spiritual. She was created to seek and be satisfied by the living water. But she's tried to fill that void in her life with anything else. And she's still thirsty. See, her pursuit of satisfaction is false worship. We're talking about true worship. Finding satisfaction in anything else is false worship. And this isn't just a Samaritan woman problem. We read about this vividly in the book of Jeremiah. God's people were called out. False, false worship, they're called out in chapter 2, verse 13. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. God's people forsook the living water. God, the, the mountain that supplies living water, everything that they need. They said, we don't want that. And instead, we're going to try to quench our thirst with everything else over here. And they hewed out for themselves cisterns to try to contain all this pleasure and satisfaction that they sought. But it could not hold anything. And they were never able to be thirsty. And they're never able to quench their thirst. But that's not just an Israel problem. That's something that we all do. There are things that we have done in our life because we are born sinners. We are born rejecting God saying, I don't want that. I'm going to come over here and I'm going to try to find whatever I want to bring me meaning and satisfaction in our life. And we have a host of options. The world we live in, there are so many things we can choose from to try to bring meaning and satisfaction and pleasure into our life. Everything good and bad, moral, immoral, legal, illegal. Could be seeking satisfaction in sexual relationships like this woman. Or in relationships in general. Maybe her particular desire was for companionship. Maybe it wasn't the sexual side of things. We can, we can seek the pleasure that comes from having a family or a spouse finally 
or, or someone just to be a good friend at the expense of the living water. We can seek our dream job or our dream house. We could seek achievement, whether it's academic or athletic or artistic, being able to be seen as the person who can do that, who, who, who did that, who's good at that thing, seeking desire or prestige or, or p- power. We can come to these wells trying to satisfy our souls, but they leave us dry and empty. I've read a couple different stories over the years of, of survival, and uh, survival out in the ocean, shipwrecks in the ocean, are some of the most difficult, difficult stories. The, those are the, the, some of the most difficult places to survive out in the ocean. And one of the, the main themes in these stories that I've read, and one of the main reasons it's so hard to survive in the ocean is because you're surrounded by water that you cannot drink. You are in the ocean and you are thirsty. After a day, you are thirsty and you're surrounded by miles and miles and gallons and gallons of water that you cannot drink. If you drink salt water, your body takes so much energy to process it that you're left more thirsty than you were before. And that's what these desires do for us trying to find satisfaction in these things that cannot inherently satisfy us. We weren't created to be satisfied in our soul by sexual pleasure or by the things that we own or by entertainment. And the more that we engage in them, the more thirsty we become. And that's why Jesus comes to this woman and says, you can have something that will quench your thirst. Maybe, maybe you're like that woman. Maybe you feel that most significantly where there's pain in your life, where you've invested in something you think will bring you what you want out of life, and it has disappointed. Uh, that might be a good thermometer on, on where false worship is happening in your heart, the things where you're disappointed. You wanted satisfaction out of them, and they have come up short. We know all these things, right? There are all these things, and there are good things, good things that, that are created to be good, but on their own they don't bring ultimate satisfaction to us. And then there are things that are bad for us to want and desire and to to spend our life doing. But they're really flashy, right? There's so many options of things that can entertain you endlessly. All these nifty gadgets, all the things that you can play more sports than you ever could. You can be involved in any hobby you want to. So many ways that you can find joy and pleasure in your life. And can God, can Jesus really compete with that? Can he come and say, those things are worthless. It's better, it's better just to know me. Can Jesus really step into our world where we have everything at our fingertips and say, that stuff is worthless. It's actually infinitely better just to know me. Jesus does say that. That's his claim here. That if you knew who you're talking to, you could have living water. Water that will satisfy you. Psalm 16 bears this out. In your presence there is how much joy? There is fullness of joy. Any joy that we can imagine in this world is just a pale shadow compared to the fullness of joy that is in God's presence. And part of our difficulty is that we can't even comprehend what that looks like because we're here. This is what we know. 
And God says, you don't even know what pleasure and satisfaction is because this is just a taste of it. But in his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Similarly, Psalms 145, God says, says to God, you open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Jesus makes the claim that he is the living water that will satisfy your soul. And so, when he calls this woman out on her sin and calls her to repent for seeking satisfaction in everything else, that call is for every one of us to repent of our false worship, our seeking of satisfaction in many other things. The call is to do that once and for all and come to Jesus in repentance and faith. But for those of us who have, who are true worshipers, the call is to keep doing that because we keep coming back over here. We keep saying, oh, there's this little thing that is gonna taste good. We keep trying to drink from the wells over here every once in a while when we know the living water. So the call is for us to keep repenting and keep turning back to the living water. We can only be true worshipers if we have turned away from our false worship. Worship, let's get to more of a discussion of what worship is. We get it here into verse 19 and 20. What does true worship look like? We're not gonna say what does worship have to do with worship. Let's instead ask, what does true worship actually look like? So when Jesus does this and confronts her and calls her out, she engages him still, but she deflects him. Verse 19, 20, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She's talking about Mount Gerizim, the mountain nearby where they're at uh, in Sychar is a mountain where this really dramatic thing happened when the people came into the promised land, when God brought Israel into the promised land, uh, they set up this really cool scenario where half the people stood on one mountain called Mount Ebal, and across the valley was Mount Gerizim. And God told them to take turns reciting back to each other the curses of disobeying God's word and the blessings of obeying God's word. The curses came from Mount Ebal, and the blessings came from Mount Gerizim, and they chanted across this valley back and forth. I think that would probably have been a pretty cool thing to see. And then when this people group, the Samaritans, broke off from the rest of the people of Israel. They went, they moved north, they intermingled with the people around them, they mingled their religion, the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Old Testament with the other religions around them, and they said, yeah, we don't need to worship in Jerusalem, so they picked Mount Gerizim, and they built their own temple there. And so this woman is saying, this is what our people have done, I know you do this thing, and she could be saying a couple different things and bringing this up. It seems like it's kind of a deflection, trying to you know, avoid the topic that Jesus is getting into. Uh, she could be saying, okay, you're trying to point out my sin, you're trying to have a religious conversation, but you gotta answer this question for me first before I'll listen to you. You say this and our people say that. And maybe you have heard that if you tried to share the gospel with someone, they've got that one question. Well, before I listen to you, you gotta answer me this. Why is there evil in the world if God is good? Uh, or maybe you have some of those questions. Maybe before you will assent to what God says about you and your life, you demand an answer for one of these questions. I, I don't know what that might be, but it seems like that might be what she's doing. And there's a lot more we could d dissect here with these verses, what Jesus is trying to say. Uh, but he responds here, verse 21. He said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when either on this mountain or in Jerusalem 
will you worship your father, worship the father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is saying quickly there, there was a right way you were supposed to worship, you got it wrong, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman, with a little bit of deflection again, says, I know the Messiah is coming, he is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's try to get through all that. Jesus is basically saying there is a right way to worship. You don't get to pick and choose. Everybody doesn't get their own way. But he is also saying, and this is going to change. This is going to be different now. The hour is coming and is now here. There's going to be something new. It doesn't mean that God has changed his mind. He's just introducing something new into his story of people. And true worship is going to be different. And it starts with the Father. Worshippers will worship what or who? Verse 23, worshipers will worship the Father. True worship is centered around a person. It's not a set of rites or actions, rituals that you have to go through. It is a person. It is knowing God the Father. But that's qualified here. We will worship the Father how? We'll worship him in spirit and in truth. We'll worship the Father, first of all, in spirit. This is the immaterial side of man. The, the, the heart of man must be involved in worship. It's not just the words you say, the actions you do on the outside. True worship of the Father has to come from the inside. It has to come from the spirit, from the heart. The Old Testament Jews and the Samaritans too, they had their outward practices. They had the sacrifices that they had to do and the offerings they had to make. They had the, the words they were supposed to say and not supposed to say, even the clothes they were supposed to wear and not wear. But that is going to be different now. There's going to be something different, Jesus is saying. And it doesn't mean that true worship will not have an outward component, will not have outward signs of, of true worship on the inside. There will be things that true worshipers will do and say and not do and not say because they're true worshipers, but it will, become, it will come from the inside. It will come from their heart and not from just a compliance to a set of rules. It will come from a heart that, is, that knows God the Father and is satisfied in him. So true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Why truth? If we're going to worship the Father, we need to know who he is. There has to be content. We have to know the Father to worship him. We have to know who he is to be satisfied in who he is. Now, how do we know the truth? How do we know the truth that leads us to worship God the Father? If you remember the last time I preached, I was in the beginning of this book, John chapter one, where we read that Jesus came full of grace and truth. And later in that section, says that he came to make his father known. We know the father, we know the truth about the father because of Jesus. Jesus came to make his father known. That's why he says to this woman, the hour is coming and is now here. 
This change is happening because Jesus is on the scene. Jesus is there to make known the Father, to make genuine worship of the Father from the inside out possible in a way that it never was before. He's telling this woman, you thought that worship was, was getting the right mountain. You, know, you say it's Jerusalem, we say it's Mount Gerizim, but you actually showed by your lifestyle what you were worshiping. This woman showed that she was worshiping maybe the pleasure or, or the companionship, all these different relationships she sought out. Your lifestyle showed what you were worshiping. Now, same can be true, fair, fair to say, of the Jews. It wasn't just a Samaritan problem, it was a Jewish problem. It's a human problem. Our lifestyle shows what we're worshiping, even if we claim this or that. But now, because Jesus is here, it's possible for there to be genuine worship from the inside out. So what is true worship? It is inner satisfaction with God the Father that leads to a lifestyle of love and obedience to God the Father. Outward lifestyle that comes from an inward satisfaction with God the Father. Now as I said, when we use the word worship, most of the time we think about music. I don't think Jesus is really talking about music at all here. He's talking about a lifestyle, how you live your life. But what he says here teaches us how to worship when we sing. These truths apply to what we sing. We, we spent time already this morning, we're going to sing at the end what we call corporate worship. And that should be influenced by what Jesus is saying here. How does this affect what we sing when we sing together? First of all, we're worshiping God the Father. That's why we start off our services, if you pay attention to the order of our services, we start off with a doxology. We're just going to praise God for who he is. And primarily those songs focus on God the Father. But then we take time to, well, we'll get to that in a minute here. We're going to sing about and praise God the Father. Number two, we're going to worship in spirit. That means if it's not coming from your heart, it's not worship. R.C. Sproul said, you can be singing holy, 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 but if you're not thinking about God, you're not worshiping. If you're thinking, thinking about how your voice sounds to the person next to you as you sing, or whether or not you can hit the bass line, like I think about sometimes, it's not worship. Worship isn't getting the right songs or playing the right kind of music. We worship according to truth, too. God says how he's supposed to worship, how he's supposed to be worshiped. We don't get to choose how we worship. You don't get to say, I showed up, I don't have to sing, showing up should be enough. You don't get to say, that's my worship. God says how he should be worshiped. We don't get to say, I'm gonna sing on the songs I like and that's how I'm gonna worship. We don't get to pick which songs we worship too. We don't determine how we worship. And also, if we're going to worship according to truth, we're going to worship because Jesus helps us know what truth is. And that's why we sing so much about Jesus too. The first part is doxology in our service. The second part is a focus on the gospel. We sing because Jesus makes the Father known to us. Jesus on the cross 
helps us see who the Father is, and that's why we sing about the cross so much. All right, last question here. What does worship have to do with evangelism? Two quick answers, or two categories of answers. Worship tells us how to evangelize, and it tells us why to evangelize. Uh, we're gonna see, we, we've seen as we've gone through how Jesus interacted with this woman, and there are things that we can learn and copy and imitate in how Jesus interacted with this woman. How did Jesus meet someone that needed to hear it? He went to where people are. He went to the well. We need to go where people are. And what do you do when you get there? You talk to them. Jesus talked to this woman. He talked to her about water. What do you talk to people about? Whatever. And then you show them the good news of the gospel. Jesus went deep with this woman's pain. He, showed, he understood where her false worship was because of where she was disappointed and dissatisfied. And he gently pressed into that to show her where she really needed the gospel. Jesus didn't get distracted. She tried to side rail it, oh, you gotta answer this question, or are you really greater than our father Jacob? Jesus didn't get distracted. Another great thing that we should learn from Jesus and how he interacted with this woman is he let her talk. He, he said things to her so that she would respond. He asked her questions. He, he let her talk and then he listened to her. And that's how he knew what truth to speak to her. Those are a few quick lessons. I wish we could say a lot more about how to evangelize. But this story is more about why to evangelize. When we look at this, we understand evangelism comes from worship. What I mean by that is we see at the end of the story that because this woman became a true worshiper, she then became an evangelist. She became an evangelist because she was a true worshiper. Let me ask, answer this question first. You might be asking, how do we know she was a true worshiper? It doesn't exactly say that, but I think the signs are there. The beginning of this conversation, she just talked to Jesus. She said, you're a Jew. And she said, you're not greater than our father Jacob. Later on, she said, okay, I'll concede you're a prophet. But then, in verse 26, when Jesus says, I who speak to you, the Messiah you're talking about, I am he. And as soon as he says that, the conversation stops. And what does she do? She goes and runs and tells people about it. And she says to them in verse 29, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ, the Messiah? And the people she went and talked to, they came out of the town. They came to see this Jesus. Now take a moment to think, who is she going and telling? She's telling the people that hated her. She's telling the people that ostracized her. Why? The only explanation is she is tasting of the living water. She has tasted something that satisfies her soul and she wants other people to know. True worshipers have water that satisfies and then water that overflows. This woman, she said, he told me everything I ever did. They knew everything she did, right? Some of those people she went and told might have been her ex-husbands. Might have been the wives of her ex-husbands. And she told them this man who knew everything she did and loved her still. 
and she wants them to know it. This water is overflowing from her. That's what Jesus spoke of back in verse 13. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And he says that again in John chapter 7. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And we see for this woman the right motive for evangelism, the fuel for evangelism, is not shame or guilt. Maybe as we've been going through this and you've seen the, the, the good example of Jesus reaching out to someone who needs hope, and maybe you have felt guilty for, for times when you have not given hope to someone, you've not offered truth, you've not shared the gospel with someone. You, you might feel guilty for that, you might feel shame, and, and there may be some truth there. But that will not fuel evangelism. Worship will. This woman uh, was a worshiper. She became a true worshiper because Jesus evangelized her. The goal of evangelizing her, God made her into a true worshiper. The goal of evangelism is true worship. But then this woman, because she was a true worshiper, became an evangelist, and she passed that on to other people. The theme here is evangelism. I'm sorry, the theme is worship. Evangelism only exists because not everybody is a true worshiper yet. Evangelism serves worship, and it's the end goal. It's why people need to be evangelized, and it's what happens when people become true worshipers. Not guilt or shame. I was watching this week uh, a video clip of a sporting event. Have you ever noticed uh, when you see something really amazing, whether you're watching sports, or you see a beautiful sunrise, or maybe you just hear something funny, do you notice one of your first reactions, one of your first instincts is, I need to share this with someone. Have you ever noticed that? You see a touchdown that's miraculous and you look across the room to share that with someone else who just saw it and you bask in the glory of what you just saw. I was watching the sports highlight this week um, and it was a really amazing shot from the World Indoor Bowls competition. You know lawn bowls? There's apparently an indoor bowls. I did not know this. Uh, and all of the audience were amazed at what happened and they immediately looked at each other. Someone else, I have to share this with someone else, this experience. And my immediate thought when I saw this video, this amazing highlight was, who can I share this with? And I couldn't think of anyone who wanted to see lawn bowls. Um, But that was my instinct. And that's what true worship is supposed to be. If we've tasted of living water, it should come out. Who else needs to taste this? So the question for you, are you a true worshiper? What satisfies your soul? Have you tasted of the soul-satisfying living water of Jesus Christ? And does it flow out of you? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is satisfying to our souls. And we pray that we would know that in ways that we don't yet know that, in deeper and deeper ways. And God, we pray that that would flow out of us. It would not just be something that we taste, but that we have to share with others. Praise in Jesus' name, amen.